0: Hello and welcome to the Muscle Engineer Podcast. My name is Sotak Andrei and this is episode 4 in which I'm about to be joined by Alex Leaf for a very in-depth yet practical discussion on glycine. Alex has a master's degree in nutrition and currently works for examine.com, the number one resource for independent and unbiased supplement reviews and nutrition information. In this episode, we go deep into the biochemistry of glycine metabolism and utilization and and its potential was for improving longevity, blood sugar management, and cognitive function, among others. But we also give practical suggestions that you can implement right away. Since recording this episode, I've started taking glycine myself and received many questions about it. So this is a highly anticipated episode about a supplement not many people know about. Just before we start, I'd like to mention that if you're a regular listener, thank you for tuning in again. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, welcome. I hope you like what you hear and you will check out the previous episodes too. And without wasting any more time, here's episode 4 of the Muscle Engineer podcast with Alex Leaf. Alex Leaf, welcome to the show. Thank you. So today's topic is going to be glycine. And to kick things off, could you please tell us uh, a bit about your background and uh, what is it that you currently do and... How is it that Glycine has become your baby, as you said?
1: I currently, I'm a researcher for examine.com. I've been with them since 2014. And before that, I was with Superhuman Radio for about three years, just reading and writing about nutrition research. I received my master's degree in nutrition from Bastyr University. I graduated in 2016. So last year and right now I'm just working for examine and I'm also part of the faculty for the master's human nutrition and functional medicine program at the University of Western States in Portland, Oregon, uh, where I help out Tim Sharp and Chad Naseous and Geoff Butch, if you know any of them. I work alongside them for their sports nutrition course. So that's currently what I'm doing right now. I honestly, I have no idea how my interest in glycine began. I don't even remember when I personally started supplementing with it or with collagen. I think it might have been owed to when controversies over protein and its effects on lifespan began to become more popular. And there was one study conducted in 2011 that showed that feeding glycine to rats mimicked the life extension effects of restricting methionine intake. And so it piqued my interest because maybe the issue isn't protein per se, but an imbalance in the amino acid profile of the protein people are eating. And from there, it's just, keeping tabs on glycine, you know, finding interesting studies that have never been replicated because, frankly, glycine is a really under-researched molecule due to its traditionally non-essential classification uh, in human nutrition. At the moment, I'm currently working on updating the glycine page at Examine, which is kind of how we got started on all this because I've been deep diving into more of the research now. And so that's how we got to where we are at now.
0: Awesome. So just to clarify things for everyone listening, could you please tell us what is glycine exactly and uh, what is it that it does in our body?
1: Yeah. So glycine is the simplest amino acid that is essential for protein synthesis in the human body. So there's 20 amino acids, Uh, 12 of them are non-essential, 8 of them are, and glycine is one of the non-essential, although more recent literature has suggested it's conditionally essential for not just humans, but all animals. But anyway, it's the smallest amino acid, and it, it literally just has one carbon on the R chain. So all amino acids share the same basic structure. They have the amino group that contains the nitrogen, and then they have the other side whose name escapes me for the moment, but then they have a very unique, what's called the R-chain, that differs from amino acid to amino acid, and glycine is just a single carbon, um, making it the simplest. In the body, though, it plays a really important role for being so simple. Collagen makes up 80% of all the protein in the human body, and glycine is mandatory every third amino acid in a collagen molecule which means collagen is one-third glycine and collagen's most abundant protein in the body so collagen has an essential role there uh, it also has direct roles in cell signaling uh, inhibiting calcium influx through activating glycine gated channels in cell membranes it's an inhibitory neurotransmitter it's a coagonist with glutamate for the n-methyl-d-aspartate receptor in the brain and it also has direct antioxidant anti-inflammatory effects and it conjugates with bile to help your liver detox your body it does a lot and then on top of all that we have metabolites of glycine so things that glycine is used to make that have essential functions you're all familiar with one of them it's called creatine creatine okay. Is made of glycine. Same with glutathione. Glycine is part of glutathione, and you can't make glutathione without glycine. And that's one of our body's most powerful antioxidants. Glycine is also necessary to make nucleic acids and bilirubin, as well as heme. So it's kind of an important little molecule. It does a lot in the body.
0: Yeah, that's that's fascinating. So. Considering that technically it's a non-essential amino acid, that means that the body can produce it. So why should we supplement with L-glycine or other uh, supplements at all, if that's the case?
1: So to understand why supplementing with glycine is prudent, we need to take a step back and figure out why glycine is truly a conditionally essential amino acid. The definition of a non-essential amino acid is simply that our bodies are able to produce it from other substrate. And that is completely true with glycine. We synthesize glycine primarily from the other non-essential amino acid serine, via an enzyme called glycine hydroxymethyltransferase. This pathway is able to produce about 2.5 grams of glycine per day. And I'll explain why that is in a sec. Uh, We can also make about another half gram of glycine per day from choline, the breakdown of threonine, through carnitine synthesis, it's a byproduct, and also through the transanimation of glyoxylate. So we have a couple pathways to make glycine, but by far the largest is production from serine with GHMT, glycine hydroxymethyltransferase. Now, we have limits on this pathway. And there was a paper that came out a couple years ago that looked at the theoretical constraints of glycine production in the human body. And using research based on humans whenever possible, which ended up being the vast majority of it, the authors were able to determine what the limits for glycine production in the body were. And that limit is about three grams per day due to constraint placed on its production from serine. And this constraint relates to carbon metabolism and methyl donors. So the stoichiometry of the reaction catalyzed by GHMT requires both glycine and tetrahydrofolate to be produced in equal amounts regardless of the body's demand for either. So what you have is tetrahydrofolate combines with serine to produce glycine and tetrahydrofolate that has a methyl group attached and therefore you cannot make more glycine than you have unmethyl tetrahydrofolate available. and the only way you can get the tetrahydrofolate is through utilizing those methyl groups within the body. So we only have so much methyl donation that needs to occur and therefore we can only produce so much glycine. Otherwise, uh, you know theoretically we could make unlimited glycine if we could just somehow use methyl groups on a supply basis rather than a demand basis. But that's not how the body works and this raises an interesting question from an evolutionary perspective because it's like well why would we evolve with this limit on glycine synthesis and part of it has to do with the fact that our common ancestors uh, had smaller bodies than us and so this worked for them but over time as we evolved this metabolic pathway never changed and Now we're kind of stuck with the short end of the stick. So we make three grams of glycine per day. However, conservative estimates suggest that we require 12 grams of glycine per day to synthesize just collagen within the body. Uh, We need another one gram for non-collagenous proteins like muscle tissue, and we need about another gram for various uh, metabolites such as the porphyrins, the purines, creatine, glutathione, bile, etc. But by and far, the largest requirement for glycine is collagen synthesis in the body, which requires 12 grams per day. Now this estimate, it needs to be emphasized, is based on a sedentary middle-aged adult that weighs 70 kilograms. It's also using the most conservative data available. And this has some huge implications probably for most of the listeners because it means that your glycine requirements are going to be higher if you weigh more than 70 kilograms, which is I think 154 pounds, because you're going to have more collagen in your body. Uh, It also means that if you're regularly active and you have increased levels of collagen turnover because of that physical activity, you're going to require more glycine. We don't know how much more physical activity affects us. And if we use the range of reasonable estimates that the authors present in their paper rather than just the most conservative, then this requirement can be threefold greater. Uh, 36 grams of glycine per day. What has been found to occur, but the authors chose not to use it because they wanted to provide a conservative estimate. So, I 12 grams of glycine per day for collagen synthesis, plus another 2 grams for other stuff, minus 3 grams that we make within our body, leaves about, we'll just say, 10 grams per day that you need to get in the diet to satisfy your demands that 10 grams could be as high as 30 grams per day and even more if you're regularly active. So there's still a lot of gray area with nuances about how lifestyle affects all this. Point being, we need a crap ton more glycine than our body's able to produce.
0: Wow, that was an excellent breakdown. Thank you for that. So you've mentioned um, at the beginning that uh, we eat more protein or we eat more of the wrong kind of protein. So, could you please explain a bit? Because you also mentioned uh, methionine, could you explain the relationship between methionine and uh, glycine and uh, methylation, and uh, where um, glycine falls into that uh, whole cascade, alongside with B vitamins and other nutrients?
1: Of course. So, for the the dietary imbalance aspect, if you look at the amino acid composition of the most commonly consumed sources of protein in The modern human diet uh, it's relatively consistent with meat and seafood is going to contain about one to two grams of glycine per 100 grams of cooked food eggs contain about a half gram of glycine per two large eggs and milk contains just ridiculously small amounts but when you compare that to methionine methionine in these products is going to exist at two to four times the amount of glycine. The only product that is the exception to this rule is collagenous proteins. So like gelatin and hydrolyzed collagen, which contains one third of its protein as glycine and the remainder being primarily proline, hydroxyproline, and hydroxylysine with nil amounts of virtually every other amino acid. And so you can hypothesize that we used to eat a more balanced diet in the past when we had to kill animals and do all that stuff uh, because we would naturally be eating the collagen that was on the animal. But now people avoid those collagenous meats and they just eat primarily muscle meat. And this has led to an imbalance that exacerbates the glycine deficiency we already experience so this matters in terms of methionine methylation homocysteine glutathione all of that stuff because there's a pathway called the glycine cleavage system and this is where glycine can get broken down into the tetrahydrofolate that has the carbon the methyl group attached to it this pathway is thermodynamically irreversible, which is why we can't make glycine from methyl donors, but we can use glycine to create methyl donors. And so glycine can be used within the body to donate methyl groups to things like homocysteine and s methionine to go then do their methyl donation crap throughout the body. And so if you don't have adequate glycine in your diet but you keep consuming a ton of methionine, then you're going to have large amounts of homocysteine in your body, which is an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease that promotes oxidative stress throughout the body. You're going to be running a deficit of glutathione because glycine gets subjected to all of these other requirements. And so you have less that's available to be used to synthesize glutathione. That'll contribute to oxidative stress. And all of this, we can kind of merge into the longevity picture with that study I mentioned in the beginning, because when you think about some of the hypotheses of aging, that have evidence to support them, oxidative stress and the cumulative breakdown of collagen are among them. Now, I can, I'm, want to be clear that at this point I'm just speculating because we, we literally don't have any data on any of this, but if you think about aging and all of the stuff that happens when people age. When you think about what occurs when we don't have enough glycine. Well, one of the cool. things when you don't have enough glycine is that you don't have proper collagen turnover. Uh, you can't make new collagen. And so it makes you wonder about a lot of the things we see in people who are aged with a sagging skin, wrinkle formation, and also, you know, like reduced muscle strength. Because collagen plays an important role in skeletal muscle to provide structure. So there's a lot of, of uninvestigated things that makes you wonder, well, if we did have enough glycine, you know, how would our appearance change as we've aged and how would our mobility be affected? Uh, Similarly, aging is strongly associated with inflammation and oxidative stress. It just seems to occur as we age, right? They just both happen simultaneously. Why? Why? And, you know, again, speculation, but well, maybe it's because you're just running a chronic cumulative deficit of glycine that limits your ability to produce adequate amounts of glutathione and limits your ability to adequately uh, metabolize methionine and homocysteine within the body through methyl donation. And maybe over time, these things just Kind of like that low grade chronic inflammation, these things just sit there and slowly uh, scrape away at the body, but I have absolutely no data other than biochemistry and critical thinking to support it. So again, it's just speculation. That said, we do have limited animal research. So that initial study I mentioned, what it did is it took seven week old mice, now, one, one year in humans is roughly equivalent to nine days in mice. So these mice were the equivalent of about a five and a half year old human. And for the rest of their life, they were fed diets with a set amount of methionine, the normal amount that you would find in the diet, and then different amounts of glycine, either the normal amount of glycine that would be present in their diet, or four, eight, or 12% of glycine. So basically the glycine to methionine ratio was at 10 to 120 to 1 or 30 to 1 which is pretty huge and probably not realistic of humans. I mean rats in general aren't realistic for humans, but it's the best we, it's it's the best we got and it provides some some food for thought. So what they found is that with the rats fed 8 and 12% glycine their average lifespan increased from 88 weeks to 113 weeks compared to the control rats and I'm saying rats I'm sorry these are mice so let me let me just make that correction right now real quick and their max lifespan was increased from 91 weeks to 119 weeks and these are this is the same degree of life extension benefit that you observed when you restrict protein or methionine intake. But it occurred by not restricting anything. They just added glycine to the diet in substantial amounts. And this life extension was associated with dose response reductions of fasting glucose, insulin, insulin insulin-like growth factor one, and triglycerides. The 12% glycine mice compared to the control mice had about 12% lower fasting glucose and insulin levels, 23% lower IGF-1, and their triglycerides were cut in half. And the authors proposed that, based on the available biochemistry, that these effects were owed to more efficient methionine clearance within the body. And this was somewhat supported by earlier research that showed that when you feed rats or diet that's high in methionine, which shortens their lifespan, it depletes glycine levels within the liver, and it promotes oxidative stress in the liver, uh, which might be due to glutathione, but it wasn't measured. Anyway, when you add glycine back in, it completely restores levels and reverses all negative effects. And then we have an actual study in humans that gave participants glycine combined with cysteine about seven grams daily for eight weeks. And it reversed compared to the control group, which showed a small reduction in red blood cell glutathione levels. The glycine supplemented group maintained their levels and demonstrated reduced levels of oxidative stress. And these are elderly humans. So really when it comes to, to glycine and longevity and the interaction with methionine, the evidence to date suggests that Having a balanced ratio, or at least a higher ratio, of glycine to methionine, helps your body metabolize the the methionine and uh, create glutathione and maintain a more antioxidant environment. And so that's all we got for that at the moment.
0: Thank you for that. That was an awesome breakdown. So I guess it. Uh comes back to the way we ate because uh, we used to eat a lot of like you said we used to hunt down animals and probably the entire animal with the skin and maybe even the bone yeah, yeah and we also used to eat uh, a lot of organ meats for example yep and those have a lot of b vitamins and the uh, egg yolks are also uh, important in that pathway right because they provide choline
1: yep choline is important um methylcobalamin is essential and so is vitamin B6 for getting rid of homocysteine and folate obviously because that's the that's what makes tetrahydrofolate it's made from folate so all, all those B vitamins play an important role
0: yeah and um, all those are kind of foods that are kind of left out not many people eat uh, whole eggs these days or liver or uh, tons of green veggies It's not surprising, really, that we have a glycine deficit. And uh, like you said, we don't really notice it because the body just kind (laughs) of does what it can to keep us alive. And no big deal. You don't die. You just end up with uh, shitty skin and maybe heart disease.
1: Yeah, exactly. And this kind of gets to something called the triage theory which was proposed by Bruce Ames. And at its core, it basically, it, the theory states that the body prioritizes short-term survival over a long-term health when there's a shortage in a nutrient. So we see this with protein, right? If you restrict your intake of dietary protein, then your body downregulates essential functions like protein synthesis and immune function so as to preserve as much protein as it can for truly essential processes. This isn't in, this isn't ideal for promoting health by any means. And the same thing could be said with glycine, right? Your body will downregulate collagen turnover and will downregulate the production of glutathione and possibly other things like creatine. So that glycine's essential roles as a cell signaling molecule or as a neurotransmitter are maintained for our survival. But all these other processes, which we don't necessarily need to survive, but we do need to be healthy, get the short end of the stick.
0: Right. Going back to aging just a bit. One of the most common criticism I've encountered when it comes to extrapolating animal research to humans... Whenever you look at uh, animals, the data is always promising in small animals, like you said, rice or uh, rice, (laughs) mice (laughs) or rats. But uh, when you go look into bigger animals like some sort of monkey, the effect is smaller. And when you look at humans, the effect kind of disappears. So with that, do we know how much glycine we would need to Take in to get the theoretical, at least the most of the theoretical longevity effects one would hope to get from it?
1: Um, Well, based on the only study that we have, you would need to figure out how much methionine you're consuming and then consume 20 times, 20 to 30 times that amount of glycine. (laughs) Now that said, I will say it's safe because we actually do have data for using high doses of glycine to treat people with schizophrenia and by high doses I mean they're taking literally 60 to 70 grams of pure glycine per day so you know it's definitely it's possible and glycine is really cheap but again we have no idea if these effects would play out in humans at all because rodents are not applicable to to humans in any way shape or form first of all their metabolism runs seven times faster than ours so any effect that disrupts, any, anything that affects oxidation and energy metabolism is going to have a much more pronounced effect in a rodent than in a human. And part of this is easily observable when you look at the lifespan comparison, right? I mentioned that one human year is equal to about nine mice days. So another way to look at that is one day for a mouse is roughly 40 days for a human which means you know for fun all of those intermittent fasting studies that use time restricted feeding that you read about <laughs> so if they restrict the food intake of a mouse for 12 hours that's equivalent to a human going for 20 days without food So, no, that research is not applicable to a human in any way, shape, or form, and we should not be using it to draw conclusions about anything. The reason I presented it for glycine is because it's literally the only study we have, and it's just food for thought.
0: So, um, you mentioned the aesthetic uh, consequences of glycine deficiency. What's the state of the evidence on using glycine for uh, hair, skin, or nail quality? do we have human trials in that or are we limited to animal studies and mechanisms still
1: i don't think we have any research actually i did i tried to do a little digging around before our interview and all studies with that are limited to collagen and i will say that collagen in in various forms shows promising research most of it's funded by supplement companies but nonetheless collagen itself shows Benefits for treating hair skin and nails and in a future podcast when we talk about collagen specifically We can kind of go into the details for why that might be But with regards to glycine per se i'm not aware of any research for aesthetic reasons
0: going back to glycine What benefit does it have for cognition and brain function, if any? The reason I ask, because I've seen it uh, used by people as a nootropic.
1: For cognitive function, we we have some very preliminary research that was conducted in the late 1900s and the early 2000s for its, I don't want to say treatment, but as an adjunct therapy to people with schizophrenia that can help improve their cognitive performance using massively high doses averaging, you know, 55 grams per day. Outside of that, I'm we don't have a lot of data showing that it benefits cognition especially not in healthy people. I'm not aware of any actually, so I wouldn't be comfortable recommending it as a nootropic for those effects. That being said, it can benefit sleep. And this isn't you know, cognition per se, but both are mediated by the brain. And so recall that glycine is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. And we do have research in healthy individuals that consistently uses three grams of glycine taken either a half hour or one hour prior to sleep. And it's been documented across multiple studies. So it's been replicated uh, to improve both subjective sleep, so how the participants perceive their sleeping, as well as objective measures of sleep, such as EEG, polysomnography, however you say that word. So it takes people less time to reach slow wave sleep specifically, um, with REM sleep and overall sleep architecture not being affected. But people wake up feeling refreshed, they fall asleep quickly, and in the morning after waking, They have an improvement on cognitive performance tasks. So it can enhance sleep and it can benefit cognition upon waking. But whether this is just owed to more restfulness from a better night's sleep or some effect of glycine per se, we don't know.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that uh, a good sleep or the opposite, a bad sleep can definitely affect cognition. So whether it, it's glycine directly or uh, sleep mediated from a practical point of view, it doesn't really matter because what we're after is a good night's sleep. So that's certainly intriguing. One of the other nutrients that it's commonly consumed before sleep is magnesium. And I've seen, I have a couple of friends who uh, consume um, magnesium Glycinate as their preferred magnesium source. Do you know anything about this? Does the co-consumption of magnesium help enhance the sleep improvements?
1: Um, so there's no data regarding an interaction between magnesium and glycine. Now, magnesium does have at least two studies in humans with magnesium that suggest it can improve sleep quality in people with poor sleep quality at baseline, but there's no data I'm aware of uh, in people with normal sleep function. Now, could they potentially interact? That is a possibility uh, because the way glycine works to promote sleep, what they found through animal research to kind of investigate the mechanisms behind it, is that the MN DA receptors in the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is like the master clock area of the brain, when it binds to those receptors, there's a systemic effect of vasodilation. And glycine promotes sleep by promoting total body vasodilation, which works to lower our core body temperature. And the lowering of the body temperature helps the body get to sleep and be more rested. And in fact, it's actually changes in atmospheric temperature and body temperature in modern hunter-gatherer tribes that determine their sleep-wake cycles rather than changes in sunrise and sunset, which is kind of interesting. So that's how that's how glycine affects sleep. And for magnesium, I'm not sure off the top of my head how it improves sleep, but I really doubt it works by... A similar mechanism because that's specific to glycine's receptors on the brain. So there is a possibility for synergism, but I have no idea.
0: Right. So then, uh, taking magnesium glycinate would be simply a way to take some sort of a chelated uh, magnesium.
1: Yep. And I mean, you know, like half the population is insufficient in magnesium intake, so it's never a bad idea to take a couple hundred milligrams to just to make sure that you're that you're getting adequate amounts especially in athletes since they have high losses through their sweat
0: yeah then i'm not going to throw out my citrate and i'm going to just pick up a bag of glycine separately yeah yeah so um i think that covers the background and the biochemistry and the potential benefits of glycine and uh, i'm sure many people will want to pick it up and i'm honestly surprised that considering what you've presented here i haven't heard more about it, because at least not in the mainstream bodybuilding community, we'll hear you almost never hear about it. So it's much more in the quote, uh, functional community or in the holistic sphere, which is kind of, sometimes it can be looked down at it. That is a, sort of a hoax and not taken seriously, but this is definitely something that more people should consider supplementing with.
1: Yeah. And you know, if we, if we have time, I'm not sure. Uh, everybody yeah, no, we do we, we do all right there is one more thing that is relatively well investigated in glycine that is probably going to be what most people consider an important benefit and that's glycine's effects on blood sugar regulation so I'm, I'm gonna assume that most listeners of your podcast are healthy people which is great because the data that we do have is in healthy individuals. And it's been shown that taking glycine before a oral glucose tolerance test, the dose ranged from 3.6 to 5.4 grams of glycine. And if they take that right before an oral glucose tolerance test, it has been shown to reduce the peak glucose response by 15% and the total glucose response over the subsequent five hours by 50%. Oh, wow. Yeah, and this is in completely healthy adults. Now, we don't currently have mechanistic data to explain why. There are several possibilities. It could be that there was an increased rate of removal of the glucose. It could be that some independent mechanism we haven't discovered yet. It could be that glycine worked to reduce glucose output by the liver. There's a lot of possibilities. We don't know. What can be said is that glycine didn't affect insulin at all. So it's unlikely to be mediated by that. Now this research was conducted because the, the research lab before this study was done, they showed this same exact effect by giving gelatin before an oral glucose tolerance test in people with diabetes. And so since glycine is the primary molecule of gelatin, they investigated it specifically. And then interestingly enough, follow-up research to the study looked at the effect of the same amount of glycine combined with leucine to see if they have a synergistic effect. And what they found is that the reduction in the peak glucose response was the same. It was about 12% but the overall glucose reduction over the subsequent five hours was 66% lower when you combined the glycine with the leucine. And this is in completely healthy adults. And And
0: this was before the
1: carb meal? Yep, they, they literally just popped the amino acids five minutes before they drank their giant glucose load. And then we have a single study in people with type 2 diabetes with that was untreated by medications they had baseline hba1c of eight percent and supplementing with 15 grams per day of glycine for three months taken in a split dose three times per day with meals was able to significantly reduce their hba1c by an absolute reduction of 1.4 so over three months Having people with diabetes supplement 5 grams of glycine per meal, 15 grams per day, reduced their HbA1c from an average of 8.2% down to 6.8%. And this was associated with nearly statistically significant reductions in insulin resistance by 10% and in fasting blood glucose of 30%. Wow. Wow. So there, significant. there's definitely something there with glycine and benefiting blood glucose management. We do have some in vitro research, so test tube studies, showing that glycine is able to prevent the creation of advanced glycation end products, and so it could work through that mechanism in the long term to at least explain the reductions in HbA1c observed in the people with diabetes. But... Right now, it's still kind of a gray area. Glycine appears to have some pretty pronounced effects on for lowering blood glucose, but we don't know why.
0: So if we um, relate back what you said to a regular meal, because I assume most people wouldn't just take uh, leucine separately, then pop down 100 grams of glucose, how would that look like in that context Should we take glycine before a meal and then just have our usual carb plus protein meal?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's definitely what I would say. Um, And I will say again, these effects have been observed with gelatin in people with diabetes. And gelatin, you know, is one third glycine. So a lot of people who don't take glycine directly, they could still probably get a benefit from taking their collagen supplement. And it's as simple as just taking it before a carbohydrate containing meal. I don't know why someone would just take their hydrolyzed collagen or whatever by itself at some random part of the day. I would assume most people just take it with a meal. So it, it should be as easy as just making sure you take it before you start eating. But yeah, if you take glycine or collagen, you know, for glycine, it's, I would say, do three to five grams. Before a meal and for collagen, that would be the equivalent of 10 to 15 grams before a meal.
0: So uh, just to give some practical uh, takeaways, so that would be 3 to 5 grams of glycine before each meal?
1: For the blood glucose management effects, yeah. yes. At, at bare minimum, based on the theoretical framework that we have at the moment, you need an additional... Um, 10 grams of glycine per day at a minimum to support collagen turnover. It has the potential to be as high as, you know, 25 grams per day, and even higher if you are an athlete or someone who's regularly engaged in endurance or resistance training because you're going to have increased levels of collagen turnover in the body. So, just like how total daily protein requirements increase, so do total daily glycine protein, glycine amino acid requirements. Now, if you eat a high protein diet, you're naturally going to be getting a lot more glycine. So one could say, well, you don't need to supplement because you're getting enough glycine through the diet. True, but you're also consuming a lot more methionine, which (laughs) completely offsets glycine. Because it requires that glyc- more glycine be broken down to deal with it. So unless your diet consists naturally of, you know, bone broth and chowing down on uh, the bones of the animals that you buy from the store, then you're probably still going to need to supplement glycine or collagen in the diet. I would say, you know, again, ten grams of glycine per day as a minimum. If you just take five grams before each meal that you eat then that would probably be even better, and that would guarantee you also get the benefits on blood glucose regulation. Uh, And there's no upper limit for harm that you need to worry about, realistically speaking, because we have people who, for years, use upwards of 80 grams per day to manage schizophrenia. Now, is it possible there's some outlier individual who, because of their personal genetic code, they respond to glycine supplementation differently than the majority of the population? Of course. So if you supplement with glycine and you feel like crap, then, you know, that's probably an indication you have something special going on. But generally speaking, uh, there shouldn't be a cause for concern.
0: Right. So um, I had the exact same thing going through my mind that... uh if you are an athlete who exercises a lot you are probably eating more protein but you are also increasing your need for glycine so those things probably cancel each other out so you are still at the same net uh, need or even higher than a regular person would be Exactly. especially if you have a higher body weight so um, is frequency relevant meaning you said that it it should be divided through the day so I guess this means that uh, you can't just mega dose, take a 200 grams a day, and then take it a week later? I
1: I mean, you could. We don't know what would happen if you did relative to spreading it out. I think, again, from a blood glucose management perspective, it makes sense to take it with the meals that contain your carbohydrate, which might be more than one meal. (laughs) From just a purely logical perspective, it probably makes sense to make sure that every time you eat protein, you... Get a balanced ratio of glycine and methionine so you know having it with each meal but i i have absolutely no idea whether or not taking a giant bolus at once would be any different than not doing so all the research that is available has used doses multiple times within the day except for the stuff uh, for sleep which is just a small dose right before bed
0: and just in your opinion the Decrease blood sugar levels and uh, blood glucose management would translate into an improvement in body composition over the long term or would be just uh, for the health aspect relevant?
1: No, I'm not aware of any data that suggests body composition is tied to blood glucose regulation at all. I mean, we have plenty of long-term studies showing that the glycemic index of the diet doesn't affect changes in fat mass uh, when you're dieting but you know, health is about more than just body composition. And so we know that postprandial glucose excursions are a risk factor for the development of diabetes and for uh, cardiovascular disease in both healthy and unhealthy adults. So it makes sense to try to minimize those. Uh, now, that being said, how much of a difference it's going to make in someone who is truly healthy, where that normal spike in glucose, let's say, uh, gets reduced marginally, and you have a quicker return to baseline within an already healthy return to baseline. I have no idea if that would have a long-term impact on health, but there's no harm. I mean, there's a possibility for a benefit with no cost associated with it, so you might as well do it to try to reap that potential mm-hmm.
0: benefit. Yeah, the reason I ask because many people seem to say these days that uh, insulin sensitivity is very important for uh, making muscle gain, and uh, then one might think that uh, if you manage to be more insulin sensitive, so to speak, for longer by uh, using glycine, maybe that will and- translate.
1: Yeah, and again, the mechanisms remain to be identified. So, you know, there is a possibility that perhaps glycine has a direct effect on skeletal muscle to increase glucose uptake. That's a possibility. Uh, we, we don't know, though. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I have friends who take in some absurd amounts of carbohydrates, like 800 and plus grams per day, and they measure their blood glucose, and uh, it's usually within the health range of 4.5. 4. something like that and i think they also take glycine so that could be coincidence could be not who knows
1: yeah i would be interested too if anyone listening does monitor their blood glucose levels regularly i would be interested in your anecdotal experiences on it um i do have uh friends and clients who have taken glycine by itself and have suffered from symptoms of hypoglycemia Mm. uh, which is interesting but I would love to, to just kind of get an idea of how various people respond to glycine supplementation. Because, again, there is such little data available that a lot of it's going to have to be based on intuition and self-experimentation, at least until people realize how important glycine actually is and start funding research for it.
0: Right, so that would be a safety precaution to not take it on a fasted stomach. Because usually when I wake up, I take my omega-3s. I take my, I also take my zinc and my magnesium fasted, so food doesn't interfere with absorption of those. So maybe that would not be the right time to take glycine.
1: Yeah, I would just say if you're going to take glycine, try to take it with a meal.
0: Great. So just as a final question on this, for the people who don't want to take supplemental glycine... What are the ways to increase the glycine content of the foods they would normally eat?
1: Uh, Well, there's really only one way. Because again, it comes back to not just the glycine content, but the balance between glycine and methionine. And every food has more methionine than glycine except for collagen. And so the only way someone who doesn't want to supplement with glycine or collagen is for them to actually eat collagen, which means that they're going to have to gnaw on the kneecaps of their chicken leg. They're going to have to eat the skin that comes with everything. Um, They're going to have to make bone broth. They're going to have to put a lot more effort towards their diet. And inevitably, simply because collagen uh, is a connective tissue, part of that is going to be connecting things like skin and the such to the muscle tissue, which means that they're going to have to have a higher intake of calories to obtain that glycine mm-hmm. because they're going to have to eat fattier cuts of their meats. And so that may or may not work for somebody depending on what their diet and their goals are.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about uh, maybe preparing the meat in the pressure cooker or a slow cooker or something like that, but that would not affect it significantly.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it really is interesting to think about How do you get around it? And the only way is to truly eat like the entire animal. (laughs) And that's just not practical in the modern world. So really, this serves as a a great example of what supplements were truly intended to do, which is supplement, right? They aren't meant to replace anything, but they supplement for convenience. We can't get glycine in the diet easily in the modern world. That's just the fact of life that we have to accept. And thankfully glycine has two things going for it. The first is that it's super cheap to buy in bulk on Amazon. Mm -hmm. You can get like an entire kilogram for $20.
0: Yeah, I've seen it, uh, it's kind of cost the same as creatine, but you only need five grams of creatine and it would seem that you need a lot more from glycine so it could get a bit more expensive.
1: But here's the other benefit is that glycine is as sweet as glucose oh that's where it got its name from it was named after glucose and that's part of the way it was discovered is because it's so sweet so i you know it's like you're gonna be eating sugar by using glycine and you have to i have no idea how glycine if you tried to replace sugar in a cooking recipe (laughs) with glycine what impact that would have on the like, physiochemical properties of the food. But it's interesting to think about, especially from a public health perspective, it's like, well, what if you could get companies to start cooking food with glycine instead of sugar? Uh, What if you could sell somebody soda pop that was sweetened with glycine rather than sucrose? Mm -hmm. And then how would this, then it's like, you're not just, you know, Helping with public health by reducing sugar consumption, but you're also increasing their glycine consumption. It's kind of—it's just interesting to think about, at least to me.
0: Yeah, very interesting. That was actually one of the questions I was going to ask. How should one take it? But how does it taste? And um, what is it that you should combine with? But based on that, yeah, it's basically just... sugar. Yeah. If,
1: yeah. I mean, you know, you could if for all those people who are addicted to sugar, there you go. <laughs> you know, there's your cure. Yeah. You can start eating. Tubs of sugar again, as long
0: as it's glycine. <laughs> I, I wonder how long before the glycine is addictive headlines are going to pop up.
1: Yeah, right. I'm
0: definitely going to add it to my intra-workout shake because I usually take like 25 grams of whey and 25 grams of dextrose usually. So I'm definitely going to. Add. Yeah,
1: that that would be a good one, especially because whey contains uh, glutathione in it and it contains the other precursors for it so that would be kind of an interesting combination you're getting like everything you need to reduce oxidative stress in your whey plus glycine drink
0: yeah and i usually make myself one of those protein puddings i keep sharing and i guess i could just (laughs) stir it in there and even if i don't have a huge carb because i usually that's just protein and uh, milk or kefir or something like that so there's not a whole lot of carbs in it but still yeah
1: it's a nice sweetener regardless
0: okay yeah uh, i think we covered this topic pretty thoroughly and uh, that was awesome i guess now is the time to let the listeners know where they can find you what are you up to these days your social media accounts all that kind of stuff
1: oh man um well i have a facebook so you're more than welcome to reach out to me on facebook and um other than that you know go visit examine.com that's where i work and so just if you support examine you're supporting me and the rest of the amazing team that i work with over there you can also if you're interested in nutrition consultations you can reach me at leaf-nutrition.com although i am currently migrating over to a new website that is simply alexleaf.com and uh hopefully i will Be able to also start blogging again once I get a little more free time in my schedule. But Facebook at the moment, if you want to get in touch, that's going to be the best bet.
0: Awesome. Thank you. So with that, we have arrived to the final question that um, I ask every guest who comes on. And that is simply, what is your definition of success?
1: That's a really good question. I don't know. For me personally, I would define success as efficiently achieving my goals and helping others one of the reasons that i got into nutrition to begin with that kind of fell through was to become a registered dietitian i decided to go more of the research track later on but i would say success is being able to help others live their life as optimally as possible without impeding your own goal achieving abilities
0: Great. And uh, you have definitely done that with uh, the awesome info you've dropped on us about glycine. And uh, if only people started actually doing what we discussed here, I'm sure that would greatly increase their health and uh, well-being. So with that, I would like to thank you for your time and coming on to the show and uh, all this uh, knowledge and all these great uh, tips. Thanks a lot.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me. I had a lot of fun.
0: My pleasure. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. And that was episode 4 of the podcast with Alex Leaf. I hope you enjoyed the episode and took something valuable out of it. I know I certainly did. Like I mentioned at the beginning, glycine is a supplement not many people know about, unfortunately. Because if you've listened until the end, you are well aware of all the potential benefits it might offer, with virtually zero downsides. So if you found this episode helpful, please let others know by sharing it with your friends. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review on iTunes, Or you can subscribe to it or to my YouTube channel, where the episodes are available as well in video format with timestamps to the topics we have discussed. As always, you can reach out to me on Facebook or Instagram. Until next week, take care.